The scripture reading today is from uh, Luke uh, chapter 10. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal him. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And Father, we just now bring our hearts before you as we are in your presence this morning. We are so thankful in our hearts to be in this place as, as we sang this morning, oh, your goodness, your faithfulness in our lives. You brought us to this place, this day. <clears throat> we ask you to speak and instruct our hearts, quicken by your spirit, teach us, guide us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 On our journey through the book of Luke, we came to a pivotal point in the book, chapter 9. We read in verse 51 that from that point, Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Now his journey ultimately looks to the cross. You could say the, the first part of Luke, or from chapter 4 to chapter 9, was his public ministry in Galilee. We could say that was the revelation of who he, who, who he was and is. From chapter 10 or chapter 9 and 10 onwards, we see that now there's a focus on the journey to Jerusalem. Now he's not speaking about the throne and the kingdom, but he's speaking about the cross and that he must suffer. For he has now been rejected by the leaders of Israel. The disciples have, of course, come to terms with who he is and they have believed. But ultimately, he has been rejected as the Messiah. So now he's heading to Jerusalem. And his ministry continues on the way, of course. But now Luke focuses more on the words of Jesus than on the works of Jesus. All through the previous chapters, we've seen miracle after miracle after healing and the calming of the storm and the feeding the 5,000, etc. But you're going to see more red letters in the chapters that follow. Many parables and much teaching that Jesus gives to us through these books, through these chapters. So as the discipleship continues, he sends out the 70. And this is only recorded in Luke's Gospel. We remember in the previous chapter, he sent out the 12 in chapter 9, and now he sends an additional 70. The first mission was just in Galilee. This mission of the 70 is a bit of a broader mission, and they go uh, also to the Gentile regions as well, to the Jewish, the Samaritan, and the Gentile areas as well. And they are repeating the message that the Messiah 
had come. Let's go to the text together in chapter 1. After these things, when the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. He gives similar instructions to them, as we'll see, as he gave to the 12 in the last chapter. Um, and he's, he's asking them to go and prepare the way for him as he will go to those same uh, towns. He sends them out two by two. There's wisdom in that, isn't there? Um, and he, he, that they would have a, a companionship, faith. They would pray for one another, etc., uh, as they would minister. And he briefs the 70 on their mission. And the first instruction he gives them is to pray, is to pray. Let's look at that. Then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, because the harvest is great, because the laborers are few, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is always a good prayer to pray. If you're never quite sure what to pray for, pray this prayer that God would send forth laborers, people who would be engaged in some way, in some measure, in the Great Commission and reaching people. He tells them to pray, and we are to pray also. In, in Matthew 9, there is a similar instruction. In Matthew 9, we read this. He says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, for they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he repeats this exhortation to pray. But here it says, like a sheep looking, a shepherd looking at the sheep, seeing them scattered, move with compassion, saying, oh, please pray. Please pray that laborers will go forth and reach them, that they will be sheep that have a shepherd. And, and uh, that's, that's the prayer. And harvest, of course, is a a common picture used to speak about this <clears throat> in, the, in the New Testament, where it says the harvest is great. It means it is, a, it is a great work to be done. There is a great harvest, and it's going to take labors to bring that in. It can't just be a few, but there are, needs to be more laborers. We are all called to the field in some way to be effective and be available to the Lord. God is not looking for your ability, but just your availability, and he will bless, bless us and use us in that. Remember the story in John 9 where Jesus meets the woman at the well. He purposed to go to Samaria for that divine appointment. He meets the woman at the well. She puts her faith in him as the Messiah, and then the disciples return. And he says this, he says, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white to harvest. And remember the context. He's standing there with this solitary, this one Samaritan woman. And as he speaks, others come up from the village to hear for themselves from Jesus, and they also believe. Lift up your eyes. And in our busy, fast-paced life, sometimes it's difficult to do that all, but we must lift up our eyes. We must ask God to move our hearts with compassion also, for people are lost and people need the Lord. 
So in verse 3, he says, go your way. I send you out as lambs among wolves. Isn't that a great way to send them out? I'm sending you out, oh, you precious lambs. And by the way, you're going to the wolves. And certainly there would be opposition. Certainly that there would be perhaps persecution as, there, as, there, as we read about in the, in the book of Acts, etc., he says, verse 4, carry neither money bag, knapsack, sandals, and greet no one along the road. This is a brief, focused ministry. Travel lightly, but also be dependent on the Lord, and he will provide for you. And he may do that through the hospitality of those who receive you, to those who open their doors and open their homes to you. Greet no one along the road, because in the ancient Near East, Uh, culture to greet someone was quite an affair sometimes they would invite you in you would eat it would take hours and you would before you knew it the town you were heading to get to it's the next day or the day after so he's saying uh, be focused and on on your mission and on your route verse five whatever house you enter first say peace to this house Speak a benediction over the house. Shalom, peace, wishing a fullness of blessing upon that house. And look at this phrase, verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. If not, it will return to you. I love that phrase, a son of peace. What does that mean? One who would receive, one who would believe, one who would welcome the messengers and receive the message that they would be seen as a son of peace. Someone with a receiving heart. And as the disciples preached and ministered, it would become evident who those people of peace were, those people that would receive them. Verse 7, I'm moving swiftly because some of this is similar to what we did in chapter 9. We're just reviewing it. He says, if you, he says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. And again, he's saying, where you're welcomed into that house, stay there while you're in that town, stay in that house. Don't look for another house or a better house. Be satisfied with where you are welcomed in and have your ministry from there. It could also waste time for you to be moving and looking for another place, uh, but be on with the mission. And verse 8, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Uh, particularly here referring to the foods that will be offered to idols or considered unclean to the Jew. Jesus is moving away from that. Remember in Acts 10, Peter was told not to call that which was clean unclean. They were moving away from the idea of ceremonially uh, unclean uh, foods, etc. But it took the early church quite a while to come to terms uh, with that but eat whatever is put before you. Sometimes on a foreign mission field, this might be a challenge. Uh, I'm sure I've failed miserably in different places, in China and India, etc., but we do the best we can. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So here is the message. Remember, at this point, he's rejected as the Messiah. The kingdom is delayed. The church is just about to unfold with the coming of the Spirit after the cross. And he says to them, they are to go out and say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The Messiah has appeared. 
the messianic kingdom is on your doorstep. The long-awaited kingdom that the prophets had spoken of is here, but you did not accept him. He says, verse 10, but whatever, where is it? Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, and that will happen in missions, in ministry, in evangelism, it will happen that some will receive and some will not receive. There's a verse in Acts 17, verse 32. It said, some mocked, Others said, we will hear you again on this matter, and some believed. And that will always be the case. Some may mock, some may say, we'll hear you again. I think about it, and others will believe. But we do not regulate our ministry based on response. We just speak to those uh, who will listen, and may God open their hearts. He says, go out into the streets of that, those that do not receive. Go out into the streets, in verse 11, say to them, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, and here it is again, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. There are some harsh words that follow in this passage. And Jesus said them. He said them to those who did not respond, those who did not receive him, to those who rejected him. He's about to pronounce a judgment over those people. He says there's a symbolic act here of acknowledging their rejection and their unbelief, that they would shake the dust off their feet, and also reminding them that the kingdom offer had come, but it had been rejected going into the region, reminding them, do you realize the kingdom of God came so close to you? You actually saw the face of the king. You saw the Messiah. You witnessed the miracles of his hands, and yet you did not receive him when we shake off the dust off our feet and we move on. The opportunity was right there, verse, verse uh, 12. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom for, for, that, for, for that city. And we remember the judgment that came out on the city of Sodom and its sin and wickedness uh, and rejection towards God and its idolatry and judgment fell upon it. And Jesus plucks that story out of the Old Testament and he speaks to these, these villages in the region of his public ministry and he says, you know what, it will be better for those in Sodom than it would be for you in that day. Verse 13, he becomes a bit more specific. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. These were specific towns in the north region of Galilee where he had performed many miracles. He says, If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast. They were, they were doomed because of their rejection. And these were rebellious Gentile towns, unresponsive Jewish towns also. And he highlights the fact that there is a consequence. You are free. But if you reject it, you will suffer the consequences. You will effectively reap what you sow in how you respond to the gospel. He says it's better to repent in sackcloth and ashes 
verse 14, then he speaks about, um, uh, and 15, he goes on to speak about Capernaum. Again, he says, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, and remember, this was the little coastal town in the north of Galilee where Jesus centered his public ministry. He did multiple miracles there. People saw the, the, uh, the, the healings of, of the leper, of the woman with the issue of blood, of Jairus' daughter, etc. They saw the miracles and yet they rejected him. He was so close. They could see his face. They could see his works. And people say, oh, if I see proof, I'll believe. And that's not true. The people of uh, Capernaum, they saw the miracles, and that's not enough because of man's wicked heart to justify, to rationalize, to reject. In the face of the Messiah, they still rejected him. It will always take humility and faith for us to come to God. And you, Capernaum, verse 15 who are exalted to the heaven. And that means that little town of Capernaum, what privilege you have had that the Messiah would, his ministry would be centered in you, Capernaum, that there will be no clearer demonstration of the Messiahship of Christ than there was in Capernaum. And Jesus uh, faithfully ministered there for those certain years. Sometimes people say, well, well, what, what, about, uh, the, what about places where they've never heard about Jesus? And someone in Capernaum might ask that question. What about the people in Africa? What about the people in... But what about you? What about you in Capernaum? Every man is accountable for the light that he has. And I don't know how God is measuring and judging and ministering and answering those people there, but certainly you have much light in your life. And in a Christian country or a post-Christian po country where there are churches and open Bibles and people hearing the gospel, there is much light and there is accountability that goes with that. And Capernaum, you who were exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament, a place of humiliation and punishment where there's condemnation for rejecting uh, Jesus here, and particularly the ministry of the 70. He mentions these other cities, Sodom and Gomorrah in the south, Tyre and Sidon in the north, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in the middle, representing this full rejection of the Messiah when he came. Verse 16, he who hears you, he says to his disciples, hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Don't take it personally when people don't hear your message or hear the gospel or don't want to hear the name of Jesus. They're not rejecting you, but they are rejecting him. So the 70 went out and they returned. Luke doesn't record what happened on their mission. He just says what happened when they returned, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, when you go out to minister or when you, have it, when you share the gospel with someone, afterwards you have joy in your heart. Have you ever experienced that? I've never come back from any form of ministry with regret or wishing I'd never gone, but just so thankful that somehow I was able to take part in that. 
He said, they are rejoicing. What are they rejoicing over? Even the demons are subject to us. Now, remember, Jesus had given them supernatural enablement and power as they went by faith back in chapter 9, and the same it was here in chapter 10. Jesus gives a bigger picture. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this statement is, a, is a, an overall uh, overarching statement, recognizing the authority over or recognizing the victory over. Satan and the demons ultimately are defeated and awaiting their sentence, if you will. But he announces that I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We wish there was more on that, but that's all he says in this phrase. The Son of God, however was in heaven when that happened. Jesus, the eternal Son, God the Son, was in heaven when Lucifer, who became Satan, was cast out of heaven. This is alluded to in Ezekiel 28. I'll read you some passages here. This is a pronouncement against the king of Tyre, but then it seeps over to speak about a supernatural uh, being and its, its uh, secondary fulfillment is in the person of Lucifer. It says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in your heart. Now that should raise a question for us, shouldn't it? Lucifer created in this perf, the morning star, this angelic worshipping being created in heaven, and one day iniquity was found in his heart. And we say, what was that? What is the iniquity that was found in his heart? And in Isaiah 14, it gives us a bit more information. This, again, is a pronouncement against the king of um, Babylon, isn't it? Is it Babylon? I think it's the king of Babylon. But again, it seeps over to speak about a supernatural being, speaking about Lucifer. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut to the ground, who weakens the nations? For you have said in your hearts, notice that, This is the iniquity that was found in his heart. This is what he said in his heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will, these are called the five I wills of Lucifer. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And he says here, but you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit, that he was cast down to the earth. And ultimately, he will be uh, punished and tormented forever. And there are other times where he is cast down in his activity. But at the moment, he is named to be the God of this world, the prince and power of the air. And he has effect and he is mighty, but he is not Almighty. And in this passage, whether it be these Gentile or Jewish towns, or whether it be Satan and the demons themselves, there was an accountability for their rebellion and their rejection, and that is highlighted in this passage, which is a challenging one for us to consider together this morning. 
he says in verse 19, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, you can take this as you will. Some take this to be literal, that Jesus gave them um, authority literally over serpents and literally over scorpions. Um, There are even some strange, extreme Christian churches in the world in parts of America where they have poisonous snakes in their service and people get bitten during the service because they presumptuously think about this verse. And we are considering introducing that here in the church. (laughs) This doesn't mean that presumptuously we go out and we try things like that. The emphasis is Jesus is saying, I give you authority. I will be with you. I will protect you. And he was faithful to do that with them. Think how astounding this mission must have been for these disciples to go out and all of a sudden they find that they have this authority, this power to pray, to see people get healed. It would have been unbelievable. And they came back and they said, we rejoice because the demons uh, are submitted to us. And what does Jesus say? He says, do not rejoice in this. Wow, the demons, they, 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 are, they respond to us. Wow, the power is on our hands, the healings, the miracles. Wow, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. How profound that is. If we just leave today with that resting in our hearts, we do well. To think about this, Jesus wants to focus his disciples' attention on the, on the crowning truth that the gospel brings, that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice over this, that you have blessed assurance. And this is the greatest, most fundamental reason for rejoicing in a believer's life. It is your blessed assurance. It is the gift that you have of salvation. It is that you are seen to be righteous because of your faith in Christ. And again, this is contrasted to what has gone before, the towns and the villages and the places that have rejected him. But he says to his disciples, your name is written in heaven. You know that many do not know the gospel in Peacehaven, in Sussex, in England, Um, many times you speak to someone and you you think that they would have some measure of understanding and as the conversation unfolds, you realize they have no idea what the gospel is, what grace is, why, why Christ came and he died on the cross. Do you remember when you first heard? I remember when I first heard and I, I'd been to Catholic schools and I'd heard things and RE lessons and all the rest of it, but no one had ever told me the gospel for all of those years as a young teenager. Nobody opened the Bible and said, do you understand why Jesus came, why he died on the cross for you, that you are a sinner, that you're separated from God, but you can be saved by grace through faith? No one told me that until I stumbled into a Bible study at the age of 21 and got gloriously saved and there's been no looking back. You remember your day when someone simply 
defined the gospel. It's really just explaining what grace is in a few moments and how someone's heart and eyes can be open to that. Do you remember those types of experiences? How incredible it is that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And sometimes just a little clarifying with the Spirit of God, anointing those words is enough for someone to be gloriously, eternally saved. Unbelievable. Oh, God, give us, give us silver tongues to, to share the gospel when the opportunity is open for us. We have Discipleship Explored starting next week. Please be praying for that. If you are not going, that's, if, you can't, if you can come, come. If you can't come, I understand, but let's be praying as a church. I know that there are some unbelievers that are coming to that course. Let's be praying. So Jesus prays now to the Father in front of the disciples. Let's look at the prayer. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father. I always think how amazing it must have been as a disciple to watch Jesus pray, to listen to Jesus pray, the fervency, the intimacy, the anointing, the connection. When they saw him pray, they went up to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray because there was something about that with the Father and the Son. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it, it seemed good in your sight. You remember earlier with the great confession of Peter in Matthew 16, 17, when Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And here it is again. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you reveal this. And God reveals the person of Christ. He reveals the principle of the victory over Satan. He reveals the blessed assurance of salvation. He anoints the eyes and the ears by the Spirit and gives believers understanding. And who has he revealed this to? It says, not to the wise and the prudent or the intellectual or those who think they know those who are resting on their own way, their own thoughts, their own righteousness. No, it's not revealed to them, but it's the opposite. It's revealed to babes, the one who has the heart of a child, the one who is humble and quick to recognize their sin and their need for mercy. And the Father is quickly available to make something beautifully revealed to them. His prayer continues, verse 22. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. This is actually the prayer. He's, of course, it's for the, for the disciples' learning and preparation also. But all things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. M amazing phrase here. Uh, notice what he says. Uh, at the end, and to the one to whom the Son will reveal him. So here's the first thing. No one knows the Father. No one knows the Son. No one knows God unless the Son reveals him. No one knows the Son unless the Father reveals him. No one knows the Father unless the Son reveals him. No one knows God unless the Holy Spirit reveals him. It's a secret. 
And it's not by my intellect, it's not by my IQ, it's not by my GPA or my wisdom or my college or all of, all of that. It's, it's known the secret, the key that opens that secret is a, a humble heart, a repentant heart that looks to God in need and suddenly we understand. We understand. He gives us understanding. Listen to 1 John 5.20. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his son. Don't you love that? That verse says that God has given you an understanding. And what is it that we understand? We understand that he has come in the flesh. We understand that he is the son of God. And it says that we understand that we may know him and that we are in him, and that's the blessed assurance of salvation. So let's move on here. Uh, Verse uh, 23, yeah. And then he turned to his disciples. I love this. He turned to his disciples and he said privately. Wonderful, personal word to his precious disciples. And he says, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Now they had seen the face, the works, the hands, the person of the Messiah. They had seen the king and the kingdom come so close. And yet Jesus wept over Jerusalem for that generation had rejected him. And he says to his disciples who had believed on him, who had received him, and he says, listen, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Blessed are your eyes. And then he says, verse 24, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And here he's alluding to... Uh, Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David, prophets and kings of old, who were inspired to even make prophecies about the one who would come, make messianic prophecies about the king who would come, the suffering servant who would, who would suffer. And they would write these prophecies and listen to this. This is in 1 Peter 1. It says this, and this is speaking about this principle. Peter says, of this salvation, what salvation? Of this salvation that you have, that I have, that came by grace through faith in Christ. Peter says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come, asking what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he testified the sufferings of Christ and the glory that shall follow. I'll just summarize it. The prophets under inspiration, Isaiah writing Isaiah 11 about the king who would come, Isaiah 53, the servant who would suffer. And as he was writing and being inspired, he would say, Lord, who is this? And when will it happen? And the Holy Spirit answered those prophets. Listen to what the Holy Spirit said. Verse 12, to them it was revealed. So they asked, who is it and when is it going to happen? And the Holy Spirit answered, it was revealed to them 
that not to themselves, but to us, Peter says to the church. To us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel. Isn't that amazing? The prophets would ask, when is this? Who is this? Tell us the detail. And, and the Holy Spirit would say, it's not for you. Just faithfully record what is given to you, but it is for those that will come, those who will believe. We can say now it's for those who are in the church age. It's for us sitting here this morning that we marvel, understanding these prophecies are written about him. And he came and he fulfilled them. And many saw them and even rejected him. And many saw them and received him. But remember when after the resurrection, when Peter appeared to Thomas and Jesus said, Oh, you believe because you have seen Thomas, but blessed are those who believe who have not seen and again, that's speaking about us. It's speaking about the principle of faith. We were not in Galilee at these times. We didn't see those miracles, but we read the word and we come by faith and humility and we look to God and God has made himself known to us. God has revealed himself to us. And you know what we would say to one another this morning? Blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your ears. For all that you see in your spirit, all that you hear in your spirit, all that has been illuminated to your life by the Spirit of God, how, how unspeakable it is. What an incredible privilege. How blessed we are. All of eternity will be revealing that to us. How blessed we were in this, on this short timeline that we would come to a living faith in the living God, that he would be revealing himself to us, that we would walk each day with Jesus, that we would live by faith, that we would be available to him, that we would experience his spirit in us, guiding us, convicting us, correcting us, changing us. And we would say to one another, oh, blessed are our eyes, blessed are our ears, Blessed are we who have not seen yet believed. Blessed are we who have blessed assurance that we know that we are in Christ and we are eternally secure in him. Oh, the prophets would have given so much to see this, to know this, to hear this. They didn't even have the New Testament epistles that we have that explain, unfold the treasures of the cross and grace and body life and look to the second coming of Christ. How privileged we are not only to be believers, but to have the full canon of Scripture and to be able to study the Scriptures and grow in our understanding and grow in our faith. What this passage does, although some of the verses are very harsh words against those who have rejected it, but what this passage does, it highlights the incredible privilege to be a believer, to be a Christian, and to be a disciple. What a privileged road that is. What an unspeakable gift. We are saved and we are on a journey of discipleship with him. And we want to realize that every day afresh. May we remind one another. May we weave that into our devotion when we open the word, when we pray, oh, blessed are my eyes, blessed are my ears, blessed is my heart. I am a blessed person. And it has come upon me because of grace. I do not deserve it. And yet I can say with a confidence this morning that I am a child of the King 
that I am a saint, I am a brother, I am in Christ, I am righteous in him, I am complete in him, I am sanctified in Christ. It is a finished work, and his work of salvation beautifully uh, uh, completed in us. Of course, yet our physical resurrection to come, but we are in Christ. How beautiful that is. So with that note of blessing on our hearts, let's, uh, let's pray together. So, Father, we do just take a moment to recognize the accountability each person has for the light they have received. The effect of what it means to accept or reject. Oh, we, we pray for our loved ones. We pray for people in our lives, in this town, in this land. We pray for the lost. Oh, we ask you by your spirit, by your people, to reach into the lives beyond doors and, and open hearts, draw people. We pray even now for next week, the visitor's service, bring people who have not heard the gospel before, fill this house and minister to people, save souls, we ask and pray. We pray for discipleship explored. We pray for those uh, three or maybe four uh, non-Christians who are coming. We pray the gospel will be so clear to them. We pray even now for some who may be here this morning or watching online and you're not sure of your salvation. Oh, Jesus is the Savior. There is no other Savior. There is no other way but come to the Father through the Son. Put your faith in Jesus. Say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you today. I ask you to be my personal Savior as I receive salvation as an undeserved gift of grace. Reveal yourself to me and lead me in the way everlasting, I pray. And use these words to encourage, to quicken, to challenge, to help us in our walk of faith and discipleship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.